good afternoon. Um, welcome to the session. My name is Dirk Lorbach. Uh, if you look in the program, you see there is another person that is supposed to chair this session. Uh, Maya, your phone you saw her this morning. Uh, but she is late. She thought it was 3 o'clock. So she, you will see her come in and then you can make some noises uh, uh, that show that, that you don't appreciate her being late. Um, I, I think she's probably at the other conference uh, uh, that is going on at the same time. We'll see. Um, very happy uh, that I can be here and I'm very uh, honored and pleased and excited that uh, uh, Rob Hopkins is also here, founder of the Transition Sounds Movement. I think uh, he almost needs no introduction. Um, what we're going to do in this session, um, and I see it really as a uh, perhaps long-term time overdue meeting of two movements, of two ways to try to understand and, uh, and change the world actually. Um, what I want to do is I take 10-12 minutes to introduce some reflections on um, where we are as a transitions research community, what our main challenges are and how I think uh, they relate to the practice of achieving uh, sustainability transitions, especially in an urban context. Uh, after that, Rob will also uh, uh, do the same but from his perspective mainly. So we try to raise uh, the critical uh, questions and try to uh, identify the issues that are at the nexus uh, between our two uh, communities. Um, let's see if this, if this is working. So, I'm very excited that over time, uh, uh, the last 20 years, we saw the emergence of this academic community of transition researchers. Um, it has evolved from, from uh, uh, small pockets of, of engaged uh, researchers interested in, in uh, questions of innovation, of politics, of, of, of social change and social movements into a broadening field. We are here with a couple of hundred people in, in uh, Brighton at Spru. There is a, a hundred more. <laughs> Welcome, Maya. We already started. We couldn't wait for you. Um, so we grew into this, this uh, uh, emerging uh, uh, collection of multidisciplinary engaged scientists. Uh, but the question, of course, is always when you grow, what's your core identity? And I, I, I think this is a discussion that we really uh, also individually and collectively ha have to uh, um, persist in what binds us together. And to me, at the heart, and it doesn't matter which type of perspective you take or which type of domain, we are about trying to understand non-linear, disruptive, shock-wise, deep, fundamental change in social systems. And you can look at it at, at, at the level of society, at the level of a city, at the level of a community, uh, but it is about understanding this process of disruption of non-linearity and it requires a way of thinking where you at the same time look at the systems level, you think in terms of radical futures and at the same time uh, operate in a much more pragmatic way on the short term understanding that things are complex and evolutionary. Um, I still see a lot of use of uh, the, the original uh, multi-level model. Um, 
the multi-level perspective or the original S-curve model, I think uh, by now we should uh, really say we have moved beyond that. Things are more complex, more nuanced. Uh, this is heuristic uh, we are using, but, but, but please create your own way to critically reflect on the patterns of change that we see around us. There is no such thing as one regime or one niche. There are multiple ones, there are multiple dimensions. What is at the heart, at least for me as a political and social scientist in, uh, interested in social change, is the interplay between, on the one hand, this very slow process of emerging alternatives, and we hear Rob's story that fits nicely in this sort of bottom curve where people start to experiment, they abbreviate from the mainstream, they are ridiculed, they have to fight, they have to close down and create collective identities, and over time they might transform, which is also what I think Transition Town went through towards sort of growing, diffusing in numbers, and then they start to become apparent to the mainstream outside world. But this process is only possible, the growth in numbers and the adoption of alternatives, when at the same time there is this process of lock-in path dependency and destabilization happening at the level of incumbent structures, routines and cultures. So we see this pattern in uh, all sorts of transition domains, and depending on the kind of interplay, the kind of dynamics at place, we can think about different types of analytical measures, but also different types of intervention strategies. Um, and too often, and I, I, in, in, I entered this quote uh, based on, on some discussions we had yesterday, I think too often we, we fall back on the traditional scientific uh, uh, mode of trying to formulate solutions. And if we take transition seriously, they are complex, they are non-linear, they are unpredictable. It's basically about trying to create problems, to try to find problems, to frame problems uh, that we then need to solve. So taking, for example, the energy transition in Germany, just deciding, or just, but there's more to the story, of course, but deciding to phase out nuclear creates all sorts of problems that then need to be solved, that then lead to innovation, and so on. So don't try to solve a transition or manage a transition. Try to create new problems, and maybe even for others. Um, so 10, 15 years ago, we started with this idea of, of early phase transitions. There's still a stable regime, and we need to develop visions on these transitions and develop these networks and create transformative practices, space for experimentation. And we learned a lot. So we did all these what we call transition arenas. It's really about, and we had this discussion on, on real-world laboratories uh, just now, um, and my argument was we need a set of, of hypotheses to see these interventions, these arenas in my jargon, as experiments for understanding uh, how to intervene in social change and how to move towards sustainable futures. For example, it implies being much more selective in terms of the actors you involve. Not everybody is uh, interested in fundamental radical change. What we now learn, of course, is that later on in the transition, even incumbents, uh, uh, to some extent, are likely to participate and to become maybe even main drivers of uh, um, radical change. So typically, uh, this idea of transition management arenas is based on the kind of examples transition towns provide us. We can learn a lot from both practice as from all sorts of literatures on how these new practices, new ideas and new networks emerge, evolve and diffuse. 
uh, and we can contribute to that. And over the last 10, 20, 30 years, there has been a growth in all sorts of dimensions and areas. And my argument by now would be that we have met all these alternatives. We know that alternative technologies are affordable. Alternative lifestyles are beneficial. Um, the question now becomes not how to test them or how to develop them, but how to deal with the exponential growth and adoption of these alternatives in the context of destabilizations and disruptions in the regime. So you can raise all sorts of questions. I heard people talk about uh, uh, sort of playing into windows of opportunity, into shocks, but it also is about dealing with crisis. But it also raises all sorts of new questions about inclusivity and how to sort of open up these kinds of relatively elitist uh, 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 exclusive practices or, or projects to uh, mainstream. Um, and I think uh, this is a picture from one of the European uh, projects we do, accelerating and rescaling sustainability transitions, transitions to sustainability, sorry Marcus. Um, we, can, we have identified all these different mechanisms and we use these terms, but, but I see in the transition community an interest in all sorts of mechanisms and patterns. So we know these patterns of emergence and of institutionalization. And we need to start in a much more systemic and, and uh, uh, also critically reflexive way uh, to uh, start experimenting with how to advance the scaling process of the alternatives. So that's what, what I would call transition management 1.0. It's about creating this urgency, the understanding of the need of systems change where you are, this revolutionary sort of long-term perspectives and in the short term this, this handwork of, of incremental muddling through. What we need now in, in the phase of transitions that we are entering is also much more how do we scale these bottom-up processes? How do we now institutionalize the kind of direction, the kind of boundaries uh, uh, that we know are uh, beneficial and necessary and how do we deal with the demise and the phase out and the uh, destruction of all these incumbent practices, structures and interests. Um, so it's about, and, and uh, people like Florian Kern and, and uh, um, colleagues, they wrote it right about policy mixes. I think it's about governance mixes, how to combine and join forces. And in, in a way, I think uh, um, this session to me is about how to join forces between the practice and the, reflection, the reflexive side of this interest in achieving large-scale systemic change. And I will end here uh, because I, I, I want to sort of have a more, an even more normative statement to finish off on that a lot of what, what is generally labeled as sustainability, and I, I'm afraid that sometimes I see the same happening with transition, is that it just becomes a catchword for innovation and change in general. I think if we take seriously the, the, the warning signs on sustainability, uh, whether you talk about climate or inequality, um, there's no way that we are not heading for a very disruptive and chaotic uh, and shockwise uh, period of change. The question we should be, should be concerned uh, uh, with is how we mobilize this disruption and how we play into it, how we prepare for it, uh, so that we end up on the other side 
in a new type of stability that is beneficial, that's within ecological boundaries, and that's inclusive. So I think questioning this notion of sustainability, that's why I, I jokingly call it sustainability, it's about change and uh, 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 something different first, and then about sustainability. So that being said, I hope I set the stage for you, Rob. Um, thank you for your attention. No, no, no. You, you just right. keep quiet. <laughs> Apologies. Um, we have the 25th anniversary of Open Heart. I don't know what efficiency thinking still is, craziness on the other hand, but we've had these five conferences all in one week. So right now they're celebrating the 25th anniversary of Open Heart in the main hall downtown. I told them. I told them to boo you as well. <laughs> For him, the discourse on the energy transition right now is not so much the nuclear, but the coal is the big issue right now, because it has a lot to do with livelihoods, etc., and is strong for the social democrats, of course, in terms of protecting labor. But he did make a point, exactly as he said, that we get nowhere if we only say we can add and add and add and add new and more renewable energy infrastructure without talking about dismantling the other. But maintaining both is just not going to be a sustainable outcome. So very much down your line. Thank you. And Rob, you mentioned on the first evening on the reception that you wish for more fruitful debate and exchange between the science and the practice. So we very much look forward to hearing from you what you take away from this and maybe find other terms, terminology for similar patterns. So for this translation, I think it's Thank you. Um, can you all hear me okay? Uh, good. So um, I'm going to give a, a little bit of an overview first of, of what we see happening uh, in the transition movement. We really uh, we started the transition movement in 2005 as an experiment. The, the idea was nowhere knows how to do this on their own, but if enough places at the community scale are trying this stuff out and sharing their learnings in a learning network, then maybe we can really start to figure out how to do this. So I wanted to just give you, that's kind of this is a picture I took in Denmark that for me just sort of captured what transition groups are doing. They actually, when you give people the right tools, they find their own much better way of doing things uh, than generally what's proposed by those in charge. Um, so, a few things that we see bubbling up from transition, a few of the learnings, I think, is we see lots of groups who are fundamentally about starting where they are, not looking at necessarily how do we engage on a much bigger thing, but breaking those big questions down into things that they can do in the places where they are, acknowledging that local matters, that place matters, uh, and finding, when you, when you talk to a lot of people involved in transition who've done amazing projects, and you ask them what they got out of it, the main thing they report is knowing more people, feeling more connected to the place. This is the Brixton Pound in London's uh, fi sp amazing five-pound note they made with a Turner Prize-winning artist to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the, Bris of the Brixton Pound. 
We see a lot of now, particularly in the last few years, this idea of sparking new enterprises, sparking a new culture of entrepreneurship. It's supporting people to, to start to create the new economy where they are, not waiting for people to do it. This is a, a, something we've developed called a local entrepreneur forum. It's a great way of, and if we hear a lot of the term community-supported agriculture, this is sort of community-supported enterprise, when a community comes together to get behind its entrepreneurs, and we see more and more new, uh, new businesses being started through transition groups. There's a lot about reimagining work, uh, what, what that might actually mean. Can we actually be creating livelihoods that, that, that resonate with our values rather than us having to leave our values at home in a little box under the bed every morning before we go off to work? This is an amazing place called Ungersheim uh, in the Alsace in France where the mayor, we hear a lot of local authorities come to us and say, we're doing transition. What they mean is we've taken one little bit of transition and we're going to call it all transition and feel a bit better. This, the mayor of Ungersheim basically saw one of the films we made about transition and said, yeah, we'll do that, all of that. And they're doing just the most remarkable, biggest solar farm in the Alsace, local currency, 100% organic food in all the schools and government buildings, uh, eight-acre market garden, uh, doing that. It's really amazing. And they sold the school bus, and they bought a horse instead uh, <laughs> to take the kids to school. And uh, uh, it was just beautiful. And, uh, and then in the day, the horse goes off and works at the market garden and does the plowing, and then it goes back to pick the kids up. When I was there, I met this man who was in his 70s. He said, all this transition stuff is fantastic, but that horse is a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, really, do you not think that for those children being taken to school by a horse is not just a magical thing that will stay with them for the rest of their lives? So, so by taking a different approach, they're creating all kinds of work for all kinds of people in that place. Stepping up this thing of, actually, transition happens not by magic, it happens because people like yourselves, people in the places where they live, decide they're going to step up and do things. And this is one of my favourite stories recently. In, in, in Brussels, in the middle of Brussels, in a red light district, a uh, community living alongside prostitution and the problems that brings. A lot of people driving up and down the streets all night. The council put these blocks in place to stop people doing that. The, the people on the street said, we can do it better than that. And they built this garden. And this garden wasn't going to feed everybody on the street, or even one person on the street. But what it did was it was people's first step into the experience of doing something, and it working, and it making a change, and it changing their place for the better. And many of the people who were involved in this then went on a few months after this to do the, the most phenomenal community-led response to the refugee crisis they built, uh, using recycled materials, a garden that produced that fed thousand people, three meals a day, a school, a health centre, but they trace the confidence to do that back to this. So we need to be giving people the tools to feel they can step up. Crowdsourcing solutions, the idea, the beautiful Brian Eno gave a talk recently where he said, in our culture, we tend to refer to genius. We look for people who are geniuses. And so actually, that's a really silly way of talking about it. We need to be talking about seniors, because actually all the people we think of as geniuses emerge from a scene of people around them who made that happen. You know, they didn't just emerge magically uh, in isolation. And actually the best solutions come from uh, enabling those kind of conversations. This is Crystal Palace Food Market, has won all kinds of awards. Uh, <coughs> and actually what they did was, uh, they went to the community and said, we want to start a market, what values should it be based on? That was where they started. 
supporting each other. Again, as I say, transition doesn't happen by magic, it happens because people work with each other, and many of us have lost the skills of how to work with other people in a way that means that we don't all fall out with each other and end up suing each other for slander within six months. And actually having the skills to run good groups, to run meetings that people want to go to, is a really important skill, and it's one of the things that makes all the difference. This is in Pasadena, where they run a repair cafe, and they have NASA and Caltech up the road, and those guys come and mend people's iPads, um, iPhones and stuff, and uh, one of the people there said, I can't believe the guy who built the Mars rover just fixed my electric shaver. <laughs> and the way it works with their repair cafe is, we'll fix whatever you want for free, whether it's your curtains or your iPad. The only deal is, while we're fixing it, you sit, up, sit in the chair opposite me and you tell me a story about your life. So the question is really, what are they, what are they repairing there? They're repairing a lot more than iPads. Reskilling is a big strand that runs through transitionists in Brazil where a, 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 a more middle-class neighbourhood and a favela are working together to teach each other the skills they need to be able to harvest rainwater in a way uh, in a city facing what they call a hydric collapse that they're looking at that, that, and there's big outbreaks of dengue fever because people aren't harvesting rainwater properly, teaching each other how to do that. Putting care at the heart of what we do uh, is something that you, you mentioned how transitions evolved over time. It's really a sort of a fundamental bit in the middle of it now. It's about creating cultures that care for each other and telling inspiring stories and having things to travel or sticky stories. I sometimes use the term. You know, the idea of a town that prints its own money. And people actually, many people like that. The town that put David Bowie on a ten-pound note is so much cooler than the Queen. <laughs> these, are the, these are the stories that actually spread and become sort of a totemic of, of a movement. But how do you research it? That's really the question. And actually, I sometimes sit down and go through the database of what's now quite an extensive academic literature on transition. And actually, the stuff that's useful to me as an activist doing this stuff and supporting people doing it, I could probably count on both my hands. There's lots of research. Usually there's a format that goes, what is transition? What's the model it proposes? And then it talks about the 12 steps of transition, which was the model from the first book we did about transition. My plea to this conference today, to any researchers doing stuff on transition, please stop using the transition handbook because the only reference on transition. There's like sort of eight years worth of, of far more up-to-date, useful material that has been produced since. And uh, for me, it's one of the hallmarks when I look at research, how good it is that I go through the resources at the back and see how, how up to date they are. And then, and then it goes, how is it performing? Which is usually then saying, rating it against those, uh, against those 12 steps and trying to work out how well it's doing. And at its worst, the, the, the research approach to transition is a very extractive one. One of saying, uh, please could you uh, ask loads of transition groups to fill out our surveys and then three years later, we'll produce some incomprehensible piece of research that's really of no use to anybody. Uh, but we'll take up loads of your time. You know, transition groups are, are, are volunteers working incredibly hard. Uh, so we, one of the things we produced in Transition Network was a transition research primer that was a guide uh, for researchers coming in about how to best sort of work with transition groups. Um, one of my favourite bits of research was by a guy called Luigi Russi, who wrote a book called Everything Gardens and Other Stories. And as a researcher, he, he came to Totnes and he just lived there for a year. He just got involved with everything. And uh, one of the things that he talked about, he said, people talk about the transition movement. He said, it's not a movement. He said, a, a movement tends to be something completed and frozen in the past. He said, for him, transition is a moving that actually what you're seeing is something that is continually evolving, uh, absorbing new ideas. And I had a quote from that I wanted to read. He said, 
It's adaptation, it's multidimensionality, it's increasing diversification, playfulness, creativity, openness to new ideas, influences and practices are the heart of what transition is about, rather than the models published at different times, like the 12 steps, which represent little more than snapshots representing one person's interpretation of how it looked in that moment. He's, he asked, how does transition find its way in response to the death? Well, the thing that really interesting is how transition finds its way in response to the disquiets and concerns it stumbles across. It's really about emergence. Transition is something that is sort of changing and flowing and evolving. It's complex, as you said at the end. You know, it's complex, self-organising, distributive. Looks different in different places. Uh, it's not just about carbon reduction. When people come and say, but how much carbon has this transition initiative say that really, really misses the point? Although it's important that it does that as well, of course. So I did a PhD uh, that I finished in 2010, uh, which I did because I wanted it to be of maximum value to my local transition initiative. So I did a, it included lots of different method, uh, approaches, different methods. I did focus groups, I did oral histories. We used open space and world cafe uh, as a research technology. We used uh, in-depth interviews. We did a big piece of research called Contotness Feed Itself. We surveyed hundreds of houses across the town. Uh, and actually, uh, what came out of that was really, really valuable to us uh, as an initiative. And of course, when you look at the, the literature, these wider debates about how transition sits in, in the wider context of transitions and so on is, is really useful. But actually, for those of us who are on the ground doing it, it's, it, it's kind of not that useful. And there's some great research around uh, the research that Fiola and Numas did in Reading, uh, which was really, really helpful to us. Uh, uh, Jill Seyfan and Noel Longhurst's work. There's uh, the transition emerging study that's happening in Canada at the moment. Some of the really useful stuff about diversity groups, researchers embedding with, with transition groups, different diversity. Stop looking at local currencies and the impact of that. It's a beautiful study looking at the Bristol Pound, uh, which looks at the number of human interactions people have when they go shopping with a debit card, credit card, or when they go shopping using a local currency. Because uh, actually, you know, at a time in the UK now, you can go around a supermarket and never speak to anybody at all. You buy your stuff, you cash yourself out, you go home, and, uh, uh, and then we wonder why sociologists say the UK is facing an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, and actually then, you know, we find when you go shopping with local currency, people say, oh, that's really interesting, oh, I love it when people use that, when you have your conversations. So I guess I wanted to just bring a few, just to close with a few things of, of needs <coughs> from, from the transition movement. What are the things need-wise? It would be really useful. One of the things is, is it's really helpful for us when transition people doing transition are able to, be, to become researchers themselves. And uh, not all of them uh, really want to. People get involved because they want to make stuff happen. They don't want to be researchers. I spoke, spoke to one woman who works for the Arts Council, does amazing work on cultural return on investment. Really interesting. Uh, she does sort of research and that's And I said, oh, brilliant. It'd be great for you to to bring that to a transition group, she said, no. She said, when I, I do my transition group work, that's to switch off from all of that. The last thing I want to be doing is, is, is researching. I, I go to it to, to switch off from all of that. So it's about giving groups a, spe a spectrum of different tools, and we have been working with the University of Oxford uh, to give transitioners things that they need so they can gather data. We produce a lot of the pictures you saw were from something we published in the Centre called 21 Stories of Transition. And, uh, we, and in that, we just we asked groups, one of the things was, how many volunteer hours have been put into your project? 
into this project we're talking about. And only six of the 21 could actually tell us that. And that totaled up to 18,500 hours of volunteer input. I was wondering, in Thomas, if we had done that from the staff, what that figure would be. One of the things that we really love is when researchers come and sit alongside transition and say, how can we help? You know, there's, there's a huge, transition groups are hugely ambitious. They want to change, as Dirk said, the way a place houses itself, feeds itself, uh, powers itself, employs itself. Uh, and we're doing some work at the moment about how we develop transition network as an organisation with researchers who sit alongside, fit in around our, our, our timetables, how we work and so on. And also, transition, when we started, as you said, it's changed a lot during the time. When we started, we imagined it as an environmental process and sort of an ecological pro-community process. Actually, now we see it as a cultural process. It's about how you change the culture of a place to be most prepared and ready for the, for, for the shifts uh, that you talked about. But, but that requires longer-term research. All too often, research is short. It has a six-month period. It comes, it goes, there's funding, and then it's gone again. Actually, studying transition over time is when you start to really notice the really interesting things. And there are pieces of work that are really, really valuable for transition groups that actually uh, are often beyond their ability to do it. Things like an economic blueprint, which a number of transition groups do now, an analysis of the local economy and where the money goes. In my town, for example, we now know we spend £30 million on food every year. £22 million of that leads through just two single supermarkets. But it means that we can then have a, have a case of saying, if we can manage a 10% shift, that's £2 million of our economy every year. That's economic development. We can start, we can drive. But that's a big piece of research that actually that, that, that we did ourselves, but other people could have done much better. Measuring the economic impacts of, of what groups do. One of the big challenges in, in, in research around transition initiatives is around this idea of resilience indicators. The PhD that I did did a lot of work looking at resilience indicators. Most researchers come to resilience indicators, spend a year looking at it and go away going, tough, isn't it, huh? And, uh, and a bit, but it's really useful to have those, particularly ones that groups can do themselves. And also ways of looking at, at actually groups and how they work and how the tools that we produce around what we call inner transition, uh, how groups manage burnout, how groups manage grief, those things that actually stop everybody getting into this work, 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 crash, work, work, crash pattern that's so common among activists, uh, you know, researching that, levels of engagement, the impacts that transition has on, uh, on political decision makers is a really fascinating area of research that we see in different places and evidence of actual sustained behaviour change. So there's all kinds of really interesting stuff happening in transition that we would all really benefit from being researched. So I just wanted to leave you with a quote, again, from Luigi Russi's book, where he said, describe transition as a social phenomenon that is alive and restless. And so I guess my, my challenge to you is, how does one research a social phenomenon that is alive and restless? Thank you so much.
boxes, graphs, etc., just as a mean of pulling out or showing the practice to be solid, valid, mm. something that is acknowledged as being successful does help in a kind of reaffirmation, reaffirming rather than enlightening, maybe, <laughs> um, way. But I would love to maybe throw one question at you, because I found it very interesting. I think Doug, the, the work that you're now doing to say, hello, transition, is a process description, whereas a sustainable outcome is one normative possible out of many possible outcomes. And this is something that has been conflated, I think, in this community quite a lot. And to be really aware about what does it need in the intent of the people starting a transition process so that the likability that a sustainability improving outcome could come around as one, one interest area. And I wondered, because you were, from your focus on disruption, I felt, is a lot of intent then of people to prepare for the crisis, like a, a bit of a self-defense strategy, whereas when I hear Rob, it's all about, yay, we're going to create the future as we like it. So I would love to hear a bit more about what we get as the kind of vibe from people engaging in those processes. Because it could also, see it sounds from you, Rob, be something like rediscovery of, I, I can actually live out my values, I'm actually effective, I have capacities that are really significant for bringing out this future, without too much emphasis on, oh, it's all going to be tough and we're going to have to have, yeah, we're going to face like that and all that. So just, just a bit more on that, what you observe in, the, in those dynamics. Yeah, uh, um, a couple of points. I, I think it is great. Uh, uh, you set the scene. Uh, I, I want to um, uh, kill some of your expectations uh, uh, in terms of, of what uh, research can deliver. So uh, what, uh, what I developed in terms of transition management is basically looking at successful uh, uh, innovation practices and, and uh, giving it a method and it helps some, kind of, some change makers. But in the end, you're on your own. Uh, um, in terms of uh, uh, helping you provide the tools and the strategies, it's because of its, its restlessness and its sort of emergent character and its evolving character, it's, it's, a, it's a learning journey. So uh, I think uh, um, if you, uh, you mentioned it uh, um, in terms of the role and, and uh, added value of researchers, it's just taking part or, or embedding or engaging as a participant and a co-producer in these innovation contexts, whether it's a, 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 a local transition town hub or it's a hackerspace or it's a complementary currency initiative, just being part of it and experiencing uh, what it does and uh, uh, and it blurs the boundaries between the professional and the private, but I, I, I think uh, uh, if we take sustainability seriously also in this community, uh, you should also experiment uh, beyond office hours, I would say. And just engaging uh, with your context uh, uh, makes your, uh, uh, well, your position maybe a bit more modest and reflexive, but it also is uh, very valuable. And that is just a way to operationally help. To, to just provide hands and, and uh, maybe minds and, and friends. And, but the second role, I think, and this is why, why I... Now, uh, uh, in this operational context, if we strongly believe in, in, in sustainability in terms of, of a, a prosperous future where there are uh, uh, sustainable alternatives, we have to reach for utopia. We have to be modest in realizing that it won't happen overnight and it is a sort of moving target anyway. If you don't have it, you're, you're not motivated enough to, to continue this journey. Um, on the other hand, the potential of disruption, but also understanding the, 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 the patterns of, of 
structural change um, that are both possible and how they work and how uh, we can intervene is, is in a way indirectly helpful because it makes governments, it makes uh, businesses, it makes institutional context more aware of the added value by the kind of things that you mentioned. So it legitimizes these alternatives, but it might also help to uh, uh, remove a, a bit of the barriers on, on a structural level so that you can experiment forward. Um, so I, I think we have to think about this dual role that we have, which relates both to, to thinking in terms of, of well, radical, uh, 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 maybe naively optimistic futures. Uh, we have to strive for that and at the same time also uh, take a sort of a more activist role in, in pushing through boundaries and trying to understand how that works. Um, I mean, I completely agree that actually the, the, the work around models and, and putting transition in context and those sort of things is really, really valuable. And anything that, that, that helps us to, um, to, to be seen as legitimate somehow or, or to, have, to, to have a place in those bigger debates is really, really, is really, really important. And I think, it, I think you, know, you, you mentioned about, I, I loved your, your, your 2.0 because actually the 2.0 is kind of where my head's at at the moment as well and it's interesting to see the, to see those sort of thinking converging the, the phasing out and those things is very much where we're moving to in the next day phase around creating new economies and, and all of that kind of work um, so uh, I don't think we're entirely on our own you said we're on no. our own no because no, <laughs> there are some great uh, there is some great research happening and and the and some of the research that, that really does that thing of sitting alongside us is, is, has been hugely valuable to what we do. And, um, uh, and your, your question about that tension between are we, are we building something better or are we preparing for something ghastly? My sense is that actually the only way to prepare for something ghastly is to be building something better. There's an amazing film. I don't know if any of you have seen the film in France called Demain, Tomorrow. Has anybody seen yeah. that film yet? The, the, there's, a, there's a film that came out in France during COP21 called Demain, uh, which, is, uh, which has been a phenomena in France. It's been seen by 1.3 million people and won the best documentary and was on in mainstream cinemas for months. And, uh, and actually the story that that film told that was so wonderful was a story about what tomorrow could be and actually, yes, you need to reflect on why we need to do something different for tomorrow. But actually, you got all that stuff out of the way in the first three minutes. Unlike Al Gore's film that was two hours of yeah. collapsing the icebergs. <laughs> and then a little bit at the end that said, but hey, you could drive a bit slower, which people didn't really buy that. So, so demand is, 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 is an extraordinary taste of that. And I think what we do in, in transition as well is, is that sense of you can't just tell people that it's going to be, that there's big, big shops coming and then leave them with that. We have to design spaces and tools to allow them to digest that with other people in the context of something happening around them that they can get involved with to feel like they're part of, part of the solution. And that actually you can start to see things changing around you as, as, as a result of it. So, um, yeah. Great. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of questions in this room. So I would like to, we've got a microphone that can travel around. Um, tomorrow, the film is 
is really nice because it also shows loads of bottom-up initiatives. It had hardly any spectators in Germany. I don't know what's wrong with our country there. But hey, <laughs> it'll work on it by promoting it here. Who would like to? Okay, great. Thank you. How many would like to ask something overall? So I get a rough feel of how many we might have to find door. So we go three at a time? Yeah? Okay. I had a question, uh, obviously, regarding how research can help transition. And um, I mean, in Germany, there is now a lot of um, research projects kind of funded by different um, government institutions um, where they say, okay, there is transition management or there is transition tools or something around, and we want to transition in this and that area, say, for example, infrastructures. And um, we would like you to bring these people together and now do something. But when you say, okay, don't work with people, that are the incumbents or that um, maybe don't really, are not, they're not really in for radical change. So is there any chance to kind of create maybe a different, I don't know, maybe create a space for these people that maybe in this moment are not really in for something like that? And it may be like you're, I don't know, say you go into wastewater treatment and then there's people that have been doing a certain thing in a certain way for a long time and then suddenly you come up with something that is totally alien to them. Does that make sense at all or would you say, okay, well, the government may be funding this but it really doesn't work in this context? Thank you. incremental change, how do you ensure the incremental steps are in the radical direction, um, tied to that when is someone an ally and when not, and then maybe Rob, particularly for you, you could... Microphone. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit short of microphone. <laughs> <laughs> You're short of mics. Okay, but that, so I... Great. Um, and then, of course, who might be other allies that may be wearing different tags, but I'm thinking of some of the allies? 
Yeah, okay, sorry. Um, I, I think, are we talking about different things or the same? I think uh, um, uh, both. So you are talking about uh, the, uh, the alternative practices of, of changing culture and, and lifestyles, basically, which is a fundamental uh, uh, um, deviation from mainstream lifestyles and cultures. Um, which, from my perspective, are uh, uh, unsustainable. So, uh, in terms of how we have structured the economy, employment, resource use, lifestyles, uh, um, it's, we cannot sustain that. And maybe your definition of sustainability uh, is a different one. It, it relates mainly to the CO2 and, and uh, ecological question. And I think it, it deals with all dimensions. And, I think part of the change in mindset that we have to make, it's not autarky you're talking about, it's autonomy and it's about balance and it's about doing things local and uh, reconnecting and revaluing. So that is a pathway towards, or at least away from unsustainability. Where we have a different kind of entry point is that I look at, at the, uh, a transition from a more systemic uh, perspective where this idea of a regime is quite central. So we look more at the fundamental change of the dominant lifestyles. And you are more looking on from the perspectives of the emerging and diffusing alternatives. The interesting thing now is that we are entering into a, a phase where we um, see all these alternatives really maturing and actually becoming possible. So. Uh, uh, transition towns, uh, uh, transition movement, uh, all sorts of bottom-up initiatives, but also alternative technologies become affordable, practical, they work, people like them, they become acceptable, and at the same time we see this pressure on these unsustainable regimes. So they are experiencing crises, which also implies that, that increasingly uh, individuals, but also organizations that we would traditionally call incumbents, are pressured or are even uh, finding advantages uh, uh, for themselves in stepping into this transition. And this is also the change that we have to make. The incumbents are not bad by definition or delaying the process. We need to have a much more refined understanding. Marco Hackett was talking about it also yesterday. Other people are looking into this in the community. Um, who are our allies? So if ministers are talking about coal exits, uh, that's not a, a small local movement, but that's a, a very uh, uh, much an institutional debate. We have the same in the Netherlands. So where we could help is to make the arguments there and, and create the critical mass and provide the legitimization, the narratives uh, um, to support the, the urgency, but also to provide the evidence of the alternative. Uh, um, that's why I emphasize also the systemic uh, side. Thank you. Um, I think uh, in terms of the word transition, I think there is a real risk of, of the word transition going the same way as the word sustainability. I always remember walking around uh, one of the biggest sort of building conferences uh, called uh, Builder, it's coming, uh, EcoBuild or something in London, and you never see the word sustainability so roundly abused under one roof. You know, sustainable concrete, all these oxymorons that follow you around the place. Um, and actually, I think, for me, it is fundamental that what we talk about anyway, with the way we use transition in the transition movement, is that it is about uh, a fundamental shift away from growth-based uh, uh, 
globalised uh, economy. Because actually our take is, is that for me, transition isn't just about autarky and local autonomy. It is fundamentally about sustainability, but it's an approach to sustainability that says, actually, when you talk to the climate scientists and they say, if we want to have any chance of staying below two degrees, we need to be cutting emissions 9 10% a year starting now. Well, that goes fundamentally beyond the way that we currently do things, the models that we currently use. That doesn't mean any new airports. That doesn't mean uh, uh, increasing reliance on the supermarket system. Actually, it requires a sort of bringing things back home and bringing, build, building a new economy. So fundamentally what we're doing in transition is about sustainability, but it's a version of sustainability that's, that, that goes much deeper for me. Um, uh, so I was, yeah, I was last night in Essen and I was speaking at an event with, uh, which is going to be the Green Capital in 2017 with the minister, with the, the local government uh, woman who's, who, I can't remember her name, who, who is making that happen. Really interesting, great, bold, visionary stuff they're doing. The questions I, I was asking her was, so by the end of being a Green Capital, will, will it have led to any fundamental shift in the business as usual business model? Will more land have been transferred into community ownership? Will, they're talking about we're going to create 20,000 jobs. Well, how many of those jobs will be new uh, uh, enterprises that emerge from this? Or how many of those will just go be new jobs created by uh, the kind of the establishment there? So, um, uh, and in terms of Agenda 21, the question about Agenda 21, um, I'm a bit out of the loop with Agenda 21 because it kind of disappeared in England. You hardly ever hear it anymore. And for me, Agenda 21 was a kind of top-down process trying to pretend it was bottom-up. Uh, and so we were very inspired by some of it at the beginning, but actually wanted to do something that genuinely uh, came from the bottom up. Um, uh, yeah, so I guess ultimately for me, when we're talking about transition, it's fundamentally, uh, and sustainability, it, it's about moving back to economies that belong in a place and reducing distances, things are travelled, putting ownership back into community hands, all of that stuff. So it does go beyond the idea of saying, well, we're changing our water system to using a bit less chlorine, so therefore we're a trans it's a transition thing. It goes deeper than that. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. I think I just discovered another country difference, because in Germany, local Agenda 21 was quite a strong movement, and it's not on? Local, no, he's local, local, was a local, a strong movement, and um, quite a lot of people, when you talk to them, who were very active at the time, they are a bit frustrated now, so sometimes maybe need to relabeling for something to fly again, or a new emphasis, and new people coming in, and still a new humility as well to learn from what they have already gone through. And don't you mention the S-curve, and that's silly, but if you say it's a very coarse, very high level projection of what we're at, you would say if you zoom in, it goes a lot like this, ziggy zaggy, ziggy zaggy. And so we had a big surge towards sustainable development in the early 1990s and with those initiatives, etc. But at the same time, we had an explosion of the um, basic capitalist model across the world because we had the falling of the, cold, uh, the Iron Curtain, etc. So it, it kind of was washed away by saying, hey, we now have this perfect model that can spread around the world. Not entirely, but it, it just really, in terms of the legitimacy of the old model being viable, the growth model being viable, I think we are at a different time now. Because, as you said, the, the incumbents themselves understand that business as usual is not possible any longer, and they are struggling to deal with, okay, what does that mean for us? 
And I, w I always wonder um, if the CEO of BP or someone who says, unless we get long enough legal signals, meaning government regulation, can't really do much, and then their lobbyists say, don't you dare putting those legal <laughs> obligations on there, is they shake hands as they fight each other. And I think those units are so big that you probably have similar transition processes within them because they have gotten to a size that actually fits a regime size. Um, but I want to get another round of questions. Maybe you let three again. Well, how many would like to say, oh dear, okay, <laughs> how much time do we have until the next session starts? Do we have a bit of space? Uh, seven minutes. Seven minutes until the next session. Oh. Break. No. It's a break. Is everyone break. cool staying for another 15? Then we can play all of them? No. Okay, start <laughs> um, with three and then see who wants to stay on. Thank you. Hello, I'm what is needed to scale the transition movement to scale up? Um, do these people are interested in scaling up? Um, uh, I think it's needed from a, from a transition point of view, but I see that, that they, uh, some, they sometimes like to stay small. They like to stay with their own, so to say. So my question is, is it possible to scale up? Quickly. Yeah. So there's a bit of a scaling up theme going on there. <laughs> is that working? Can you hear me? No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, turn it Someone on. is. Uh -huh. <laughs> so there's a bit of a scaling up theme going on there, and uh, and it's very much something that is in our is in our mind all the time, really. And, and there is, I think, uh, a challenge, is a really interesting tension within transition that I think in some groups uh, you find a real passion for for scaling up and a and a, <coughs> and a commitment to, um, uh, to thinking in very different ways and to starting community energy companies. So we looked at in the 21 Stories book, which uh, was, a, was, was only called 21 Stories because we chose 21, not because there are only 21 <laughs> stories. Uh, and, um, but we found that we looked at seven community energy companies in the UK and combined they generated 30 million pounds worth of communities investing into themselves. And it's these kind of models of, of communities, whether it's through energy or through building projects or, 
uh, or smaller approaches like we see in the Local Entrepreneur Forum where we invite communities to invest in themselves. Uh, there's a, a transition group in Liège in Belgium who raised two million euros to start a community cooperative vineyard. You know, these things are these things are happening. In terms of where we're at, in terms of us scaling, we're not where we we're not where we need to be. You know, most of these groups work with with very little, if no funding, almost entirely driven by volunteers. Uh, one of the big shifts that we have, I, I you know, sometimes when you asked about about um, disenfranchised communities, you know, one of the one of the things that we hear sometimes is, oh, our transition is, is all white middle class people. And actually one of the issues that, with that for me is that, I, I use this term, the tyranny of volunteerism, which is that, we, that sometimes there is, an, in, in, in your question, that you, you find groups for whom the idea is, groups who are more rooted culturally in the sort of deep green left have this sort of idea that somehow the purest way to do everything is that there's no money involved and nobody should get paid. And, that, and then you end up with a situation where the only people who can afford to volunteer are white middle class people. And I went to uh, Richmond in California a few years ago, met an incredible woman called uh, Daria Robinson working uh, in a mostly black community, very poor community, um, do, teaching young men to become urban food growers. Fantastic project. And I, and I said this in the talk about, about um, the... Um, tyranny of volunteerism. She said, it's so great to hear someone say that because if this is a revolution that depends on volunteers, I can't be part of it and nor can uh, anybody where I live. And so for me, there is a real thing about stepping that culture up of saying, we need to be creating livelihoods here, we need to be creating jobs. In Tottenham, we're creating jobs uh, for people. That's really where, where we need to be going with this. And the thing that, the thing that there's a book coming out in October by a man called Chuck Collins in in the US called Born on Third Base, which is absolutely brilliant. And here the book is a, is, a, is, is a call to the 1% to get involved in transition and for the transition movement to, 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 to reach out to and involve the 1%. I've, if I had a penny for every time I've been asked, what are you doing to, in, to, to, to engage uh, uh, poorer working class communities, I'd have quite a lot of money. If I'd have had a penny for every time someone had said, what are you doing to engage the 1%, I'd have an empty pocket, but actually, if we really want to be unlocking new economies in the places where we live, we need to be getting that kind of resource coming in behind what we're doing. And then we can unlock in a way, the cooperative movement, for example, that was created jobs for people. Once we were able to create jobs for people, then people were involved and engaged. And there's lots of examples of transition groups working uh, with, with communities of colour and, and, and poorer communities. But if we really want to scale that up, we need to be, uh, we need to be thinking in a different way, I think. And in terms of the question about moving backwards, I don't think, uh, I think it's the wrong terminology. Because actually, uh, if we want to guarantee moving backwards, then we carry on with business as usual. It's the, it's the only guarantee is if we want everything to unravel horribly and us to end up uh, uh, living in the Stone Age, then we just carry on with business as usual. Actually, it's about moving forward in a way that is appropriate to the challenges that we face, taking with us the most useful parts from what we have around us now, leaving behind the stuff that's kind of superfluous uh, and actually creating a future that is appropriate. Not So for me, I never talk about moving backwards, it's about moving forwards. Yeah, very, very briefly, I, I, I uh, always call it forward with the past. So it's in, in a lot of ways, it's taking old principles, but translating them into a new context where we have a digital uh, platforms where we can share, where we can print our own money where we can have our own, produce our own energy. So we use new technologies, digital apps to uh, um, go back to the old principles. 
Maybe uh, uh, one point I want to make is if uh, transition research teaches us anything about the dynamics of, of transitions in its early stages, it is always starting with elites. Elites in the sense of people that either have time, have the capacity, have the knowledge, have the drive, have the urgency to uh, resist the mainstream and to do something wild and different and are ridiculed for it or people don't understand it, they have to explain it over and over again. Um, this is why we call it a transition, otherwise it's just something everybody does. So it has, I mean, it, it has to start with elites and, and in a way the transition research community is also a strange bunch of people from different disciplines that are misunderstood by a lot of their colleagues. What are you doing? Are you normative? Are you a researcher? What is happening? Um, and the challenge we have also is, is to open up and to become inclusive. Because if we take our, our utopia serious and we think that, that ultimately a, a sustainable or a sustainable future is possible when we adopt these kind of lifestyles, new models, new technologies and so on, then everybody is involved. And then we are not distinct anymore. So uh, in a way we cease to exist as initiatives or as communities because it becomes mainstream. And, and that maybe should be our ultimate uh, utopia. Brilliant. With this call from Changing People, I think that we've made it this thing, we'll go to coffee and grab a dance, ask some more questions, whatever you want to say. But thank you all for being here.